Sunday before Easter. Palm Sunday. It was the Sunday before Easter a long time ago, and they didn't know it yet. Jesus is approaching the city. The crowd is already massive. The city of Jerusalem at the beginning of Passover week is, is like uh, the streets of Los Angeles when the Lakers just won and we're having the parade. It's, it's crazy, crazy packed. Everybody that is a Jew is in town. If you live within a two or three weeks journey of there, you do everything in your power to get there, to get your family there. Um, the place swells to, you know, three, four, five, six times its normal population just for the week of Passover. Because the place that you want to be if you're a Jew on Passover week is at the temple. There, the temple, you have to understand, is a holy place. <clears throat> Jesus comes riding in on a donkey and the people begin to see him and they begin to get excited. They begin to tell their friends and shop doors start to close and people come running out. People are running out of their homes, children running down into the streets away from their parents and the parents can't keep up. The excitement is overwhelming and the crowd is just swelling and swelling and swelling. There's a chant going on. People are singing, Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna to the son of David. Hosanna means save us. Crying out to Jesus to save them. Why? Because they're pretty doggone sure he's the savior. They're pretty sure he's the one they've been waiting for their whole lives. They are pretty sure he's the one their parents were waiting for. The one their parents' parents were waiting for and their parents and their parents and their parents and their parents and their parents. Generation after generation, looking, watching, praying, hoping. We're in bondage, God. Don't you hear us? Please send us this Messiah. Please send us this Savior. And Jesus fits the description. When he preaches, he preaches with power and the people are mesmerized by his words. When the sick are brought to him, he touches them and they're healed. When the dead are in his presence, they don't stay dead. Who is this guy? I think he's the Messiah. Do you think he could be the one? I think he's the one. I heard he's from the house of David. He fits the prophecy and the buzz is just building. Jesus rides in on a donkey. The people are throwing their cloaks on the ground, waving palm branches and shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest, Hosanna to the son of David. And the first thing he does when he enters the holy city is he goes straight to the temple. The first thing he does, he goes straight to the temple. Now, it doesn't tell us how long it took him to get there, but I'm saying it was hours. The crowd that size, everybody pressing in on him. Everybody wants a piece of him. Everybody wants to be with him. Everybody wants to take a selfie next to him. <laughs> and the crowd is swelling and Jesus is moving slowly toward the temple. And as the word gets out, he's headed for the temple. He's headed for the temple. The crowd at the temple just begins to swell. And as the crowd at the temple swells, Jesus finally makes his way to the temple and everyone is on pins and needles waiting to see what happens. Now, let me tell you about the temple if you're not familiar. 
We don't really have anything like this in our experience. The temple for the Jews is the holiest place possible. The the way the temple works is is you have what's called the temple mount, and the top temple mount is is this edifice, this building that is made up of courtyards. And in the outer courtyard, you go in through the gates of the temple, the outer courtyard, into the first courtyard, which is called the court of the Gentiles. And in the court of the Gentiles, everyone is welcome. And this is where pilgrims go. This is where travelers who are visiting the holy city from out of town who, who want to see the sights, this is where they go. This is where seekers go. The ones who have heard that there is only one true God and they want to find out more about him, but they're not Jews. They go and they go to the court of the Gentiles and they can say, listen, I was in the holy city. I was in the temple itself. But then inside The court of the Gentiles, there is a smaller court that is called the court of the women. And the court of women is a place where you have to understand, we're we're talking about a culture where men and women have very different social standing, right? And so women were not allowed into the center court, but they were allowed into into the second court, the court of women. So Jewish women and men are in the court, the second court, worshiping God. And in the inner court, you, you have... The actual building, the temple itself. And as you go into the building and you go further and further back and into the, to the center of the building, you find a place called the Holy of Holies. Now, you'd never make it that far, even if you were a Jewish man. The only one who ever got to go into the Holy of Holies was the high priest once a year on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. And he would go in to make atonement for the people. And if his heart was not clean, if he was not right with God, if he had some hidden sin in his life, he would go behind the veil that separated the the people from the actual Shekinah glory of God. And when he got behind the veil, if his heart was not right, he would drop dead. They literally tied a rope to him so that when he went in, if he dropped dead, they would be able to drag him out. That's how holy this place was. This this place is is revered above every other place to Jewish people. And when Jesus gets there, this is where he goes. And he goes into the court of the Gentiles, the outer court, which is just filled with people. And the court of the Gentiles was really designed for a purpose. It's the evangelistic arm of the temple. It's designed so that they can share the love of God with people, so they can tell people there is only one God, and he loves you, and he has a plan, and you could be a follower of this God. And so this is where the Gentiles hear the message of the good news. And this is where they learn about the history of the Jewish people and God's deliverance and the law and all of those things are given to the Gentiles in this place. It's an incredibly special place, except this week. Because this week, it's more like a, livestock swap meet. On this week, the place is filled with animals and people. There are people who have rented space in the court of the Gentiles, just like you would at a swap meet. They come, they put their easy ups up, they have their tables set up, and they have their little booth, and they do business in the court of the Gentiles, and this is the week. They'll probably make 75% of their annual income this week. 
And, and some of them are the ones who are selling animals because if you came from a distance, you didn't bring the animals with you that you needed to sacrifice for Passover. So they would sell the, the doves and they would sell the pigeons and they would sell the lambs that needed to be slaughtered for the Passover meal. And so those animals are all there. There are people shouting to get your attention. Buy from me. I'll give you 10% off. Here's a coupon. All of that stuff is going on. I'm not kidding. Really, it's crazy. And, and in this place that was designed for worship and evangelism, all of this is going on. And that's not the worst part. The worst part is that these guys have tables set up where they will exchange your money because you have to use specific temple coins in order to give your required offering at the temple. You cannot use Roman money. Why? Because they have pagan insignia on them. And so they are not welcome in the temple. So what do you do? You exchange money. Now, if you've ever traveled to another country and you show up with American dollars in your pocket, you go to this little thing at the airport, right? And they rip you off, right? You, they owe, you pay them a big, big uh, premium in order to get money from that country. Well, it, on this day in the temple, you are getting like a one to 10 exchange on your money. They're just making money hand over fist, just, just stealing from people, ripping them off. But this was their week. This is when they could make that money. And they saw Jesus walk in. And I can't imagine what some of them thought because this is not the first uh, Sunday before Passover that Jesus had walked into the temple. This is not the first time he had seen this very same scene. If you take your Bibles, if you have them with you, turn to the Gospel of John, which is in your New Testament, fourth book, and go to John chapter 2. Because when John gives us his story, he begins in chapter 1 with some theology, and then he gets right into the story in chapter 2 with the miracle at Cana, and then we find out that, that Jesus, as he begins his public ministry, he's not famous yet, people have by and large not heard of him yet, but he goes to the temple because it's time for Passover. So he goes to the temple this Sunday before the Passover, and here's what it says, verse 13, John chapter 2, the Passover of the Jews was near, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And he found in the temple those who were selling oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers seated at their tables. And he made a scourge of cords and drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And those who were selling the doves, he said, take these things away. Stop making my father's house a place of business. This is the very beginning of his public presence. He walks in and single-handedly, he, he grabs some, some cords and he makes a whip out of them and he begins cracking the whip and chasing people. Like picture this, Jesus. You know, precious Jesus, meek and mild, that Jesus, right? He's got this cord and he's running around shouting, driving the animals out. A stampede begins in the court of the Gentiles and all the animals are being forced out of the gate and Jesus is, is yelling and making a ruckus and when he gets to the money changers' tables one at a time, boom, he just throws them in the air. Coins everywhere. 
And he's shouting, how dare you come into this holy place, my father's house, and you make my father's house a place of irreputable business. What are you doing? And I look at this and I go, wow, this is a different side of Jesus. And, and I tell you that story from John because I want you to realize now three years pass and now he's going back to the temple on the same Sunday. He's going in, all the sheep are there, all the oxen, all the doves, all the money changers, the whole deal. They, they, uh, they've just started their business right up again. And I can only imagine as Jesus walks in, and you know everyone noticed him, right? The crowd is making a big ruckus. Jesus gets into the court of the Gentiles, and he looks around and sees what he saw three years ago. And I can't imagine the look on the faces of those guys. It must have been deja vu to them. What's he going to do? Hey, quick, quick, close the money box, right? Hey, quick, lock that up, grab it, throw it in your backpack. Jesus is coming. This is not going to go well for us. And again, Jesus, well, let me, let me, don't tell you. Let me read it to you. Go to Matthew, okay? Let me go, have you go to Matthew. Because in Matthew 21, we see the, the story. Now, I just, you have to understand, this is not the same story I just read you. This is three years later. Matthew chapter 21, beginning in verse 12. And Jesus entered the temple. He drove out all those who were buying and selling in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. And he said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a robber's den. See, as Jesus came in with the crowd, everybody shouting his name, everybody excited Everybody worshiping and praising and honoring him because they thought he was the savior. They thought he's going to deliver us from Rome. They thought he's going to take over the religious and political leadership of our nation. Everybody was excited. Not everybody. The Pharisees, the priests, the religious rulers were seething beside themselves with anger because everything they had worked for, everything they had, all the control that they had over the people, all of their influence, all of their fame, all of their fortune was dependent upon the role that they played as the religious leaders of Israel. And here comes this guy and everybody says he's going to be the new religious leader and they are not happy. And, and Jesus got on their most wanted list that first day in the temple. And, and for the next three years, he just moved up the list. Moved up the list. Every time he embarrassed them, he moved up the list. Every time the people ran to him instead of running to the priests, he moved up the list. And pretty soon he was the 10th most wanted guy, and then the 5th, and then the 3rd. And now he is at the top of the most wanted list. They have a police force, the priests. They have the power to arrest him. And they've tried multiple times, and he always slips through their fingers. And here we are at the temple again, and they are seriously, seriously angry. They had been making plans. They're going to do something about this guy who had exposed them as frauds. They had to turn the people against him. 
They'd accused him of all kinds of transgressions. They said, do you see how often he comes out of those parties late at night? Did you hear about what happened at Cana? Everybody drank so much they ran out of wine. You know what he did? Made more wine. <laughs> this guy is a wino. That's what they said. It's true. That's what they said. They said, you know what? This guy is a whoremonger. You know who we see him with? You see him talking to those women? You know who those women are, right? And they're with him all the time. This guy is not somebody who should be respected. They'd accuse them of everything possible, but the people watched him and they saw that he was a man of integrity. He was a man of goodness. He was a man of righteousness. And they never saw him disrespect a woman or in any way mistreat anybody. And and the popularity of the Pharisees is shrinking and the popularity of Jesus is growing and it's getting serious and they are mad. So when Jesus comes in and starts overturning tables again, that's the straw that breaks the camel's back. They have had it. And we're going to hear more about that Friday night. Now let's not get ahead of ourselves because I want us to see this picture of Jesus, this crazy, crazed guy his, his eyes flashing and his hair flying around, throwing the tables, chasing people with a whip. Who is this guy? Is this the same guy who was so compassionate to the woman caught in adultery? Is this the same guy who goes out of his way to go to Samaria where good Jewish men never go just so he can meet one woman who desperately needs living water and he gives her grace and mercy and he reaches out to her and he cares for her and he changes her life? Is this the same guy who when he's teaching some children run up and interrupt him and everybody runs to stop the kids and he sits down and he puts them in his lap. He says, don't you ever stop children from coming to me. They're the ones I came for. How is that guy, this guy, how, how is that Jesus, the one that's here in the temple, making a point of expressing his anger? You say, anger? Jesus? Is Jesus allowed to be angry? You bet he was angry. The, the scripture is very clear that he was angry. And don't put sin on him because it says that he was angry. Because your anger and his anger are very different anger. And, and he's angry on behalf of his father's honor. And, and you see that anger boil over in him. How could this Jesus be so understanding with everybody and with these people in the temple court, he's so intolerant? And by the way, what does any of this have to do with this awkward series of sermons? <laughs> I've been preaching about topics that people feel very strongly about. Money, sex, politics, controversial stuff. And, and I've said some controversial things. Hopefully, it's all been grounded in Scripture. But in our society today, there's probably no higher value in society in general than the value of tolerance, wouldn't you agree? We're, we're supposed to tolerate, right? We're supposed to tolerate everything, everybody, and, and that's a deeply held value. And this is where a lot of us get confused as Christians. Am I supposed to stand for what's right, even when it's unpopular? Is it ever appropriate for me to tell somebody they're wrong? Or is that just arrogant on my part? 
Am I supposed to be tolerant of people no matter what they believe or how they act? The topics of money, sex, and politics are three of the most divisive topics we could talk about in our culture today. Uh, money is incredibly divisive. In fact, that's where a lot of the discussion is going in politics today, is, is the, the distribution of money in our society, right? There's the haves and the have-nots and the gap, and everybody is talking about that, and people are angry. And, and in, in marriage, what is the number one source of conflict that husbands and wives fight about? Sex and money. Money. <laughs> Sex isn't even close. Money. And, and so we have the division of that. And then you talk about sex where people have very, very strongly held and yet op- oppositional views of what is morally right and what is immoral when it comes to sex. And there's a lot of people who would argue that sex and morality have nothing to do with each other, that the two are just completely separate op- uh, uh, subjects, that sex is sex and it doesn't have anything to do with morality. And politics is the single most divisive subject in our culture today. In my lifetime, and, and I'm at least 150 years old, in my lifetime, I have never, ever, ever seen people as divided as they are today. Not just that some are Republican and some are Democrats, some are conservative, some are liberal. I'm talking about the gap between people. Like, people are staunchly conservative or staunchly liberal, and there's a big gap, bigger than I've ever seen in my life. What are we as Christians supposed to do living in a society like this, even on topics like we've been talking about? Is tolerance really a good thing or is tolerance a bad thing? I guess before we can answer that, we have to define tolerance because we don't agree on the definition in our culture. Just another thing that's divisive. So I thought, well, let's just look it up. The Webster's Dictionary defines the word tolerate like this. To tolerate is to recognize and respect others' beliefs, practices, etc. without sharing them. Okay? So in other words, it's, it's respecting the fact that there are people who think differently than you do. It's respecting the fact that there are people who have different opinions and you could still respect them. You could still respect their opinion and their belief without agreeing with them. Notice that. Because our culture today basically says there's just no room for disagreement. If you say it, it's right. And if what I believe is different, then what I believe is also right. Which, of course, makes absolutely no sense. But it's the only way we could swallow this current definition of toleration. The traditional meaning of the word is not about agreeing with every idea that comes down the pike. It's not about accepting all ideas as equally valid. It's about respecting all people, regardless of whether you think their ideas are valid or not. And that's what God calls us to. Tolerance means valuing and respecting human beings even when you don't agree with them. But in our modern society, it definitely means something different. The prevailing belief in our culture is not that all people are equally valuable, but that all ideas are equally valid. That's the idea that's going around. Not that all people are equally valuable, but that all ideas are equally valid. So what you believe is right, and what I believe is right, and what she believes is right, and it doesn't matter that those things have nothing in common. God's word, however, tells us not all ideas are valid. But 
all people are equally valuable. Why? This is, this is the audience participation part. If you've been here, if this is your first Sunday, you don't have to answer, but otherwise, this is your pop quiz. Why are all people equally valuable? Because we're created in the image of God. I like how most of you said, <laughs> we're equally valuable because we're created in the image of God. It is the image of God in our lives that creates our value. Apart from God, we're nothing. But in Him, every human being is equally valuable. Everyone is worthy of respect. Everyone is worthy of love. It doesn't matter whether they agree with you. They are worthy of love because they're made in the image of God and they bear the image of God. And even if they don't agree with God, they're worthy of love and worthy of respect. And you know what? This is where a lot of Christians are getting it wrong. This is where a lot of us are stirring the pot and creating in our culture this perception of Christians as hateful and hypocritical and all of that kind of stuff. Because, because on the one hand, we're trying to stand on truth. But in the process, we're stomping on people. And, 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 and God loves people. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. He loves people. And, and he calls us to love people. Listen, the Bible doesn't shy away from controversial issues. And I'm not suggesting we should shy away from them either. Uh, the Bible says a lot about money, sex, and politics, for example, and a lot of it is bold, and a lot of it is, frankly, offensive to a lot of people. A lot of it is hard to swallow. A lot of it is not what we want to hear, and it makes some strong, controversial statements. So let's go back to the beginning and ask ourselves why Scripture is so bold and, and often so offensive. Why is it that God would say these things that are restrictive of our lives? Why would there be any thou shalt nots? Is it because God is trying to limit our freedom? Is it because God is trying to make sure that we are miserable? No, it's because God created us. He designed us and he knows how we can flourish. Jesus says, I came that they might have life and have it more what? abundantly. He didn't come to step on our joy. He came to make our joy possible because God loves us. It's because he wants us to flourish. It's because he created us and he designed us and he knows what will bring fulfillment in our lives and what will lead us to destruction. Listen very carefully. Nobody will ever love you more than God. God loves you with, with all the love that is possible there is no end to his love. There is no end to his sacrifice for you. Nobody knows what is good for you more than God. He's not being intolerant of people when he warns us not to sin. He's trying to keep us from getting crushed. He's not trying to restrict us when he tells us which way to go. He's trying to help us get to where we need to be. It is not loving to let people walk down a road to destruction. The truth matters. And, and I'm, I've been thinking of this. How, how can I 
illustrate this. So I, I want to just kind of illustrate this for you this morning, okay? And I, I need, like, um, I need, I'm going to need three volunteers. Okay, there's one. Come on up. Okay, anybody else want to volunteer? Michelle? Yep. And Ricky, he's the third one. Thanks for volunteering, Ricky. <laughs> Man, hey, come on up, guys. Ricky's sitting in the front going, oh, choose me. Did you guys see that? Okay, so, so here's the deal. I, I want you to see this. Uh, how many of you have ever seen a movie, you might not have heard of it, called The Wizard of Oz? <laughs> have you seen The Wizard of Oz? Okay, put your hands down. If you've never seen The Wizard of Oz, raise your hand. Never seen The Wizard of Oz? Kelly, why did you marry him? I want you to take him home, show him the Wizard of Oz, okay? All right, so in the Wizard of Oz, there are, there are um, some key characters, and we're going we're gonna to act this out for you, okay? So the, the first character uh, is kind of doesn't really, doesn't have a great, he's not very smart. Here you go, Michelle. You take <laughs> Yeah, you just wear that, okay? Then, and the, the second character is the one that needs some heart work. We're going to give that to you. And the reason I picked Ricky for this third character is, look at the resemblance. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? Okay? <laughs> so Ricky looks a lot like the Cowardly Lion, okay? And of course, that leaves just one key character for me to play, and that's Dorothy, okay? All right. So now everybody knows who the characters are, right? Now, oh, wait, I have lines for you guys too. I forgot. Everybody gets lines. Here you go, cowardly line. When I ask you a question, that's your line. And scarecrow, that's your line. When I ask you a question, that is the tin man's line. Okay. All right. So here's the thing. We know the story. Dorothy needs to get to the Emerald City, right? So her big question is... How do I get to the Emerald City? That's her big question, right? So she has these traveling companions, and now she comes to her traveling companions, and she asks them, how do I get there? Now, now guys, get into your role, okay? I, I want to make sure, right? Okay, so she, she first goes to the Scarecrow, and she says, Scarecrow, how do I get to the Emerald City? And the Scarecrow says? Go with the flying monkeys. They'll take you to the Emerald City. <laughs> Did I mention the scarecrow is kind of dumb? Okay. So the, the scarecrow says, hey, go with the flying monkeys. They can fly. They'll get you there quickly. They will take you to the Emerald City. Is that good advice? No. no, right? Okay. So Dorothy's not so thrilled with that advice. So Dorothy goes to the Tin Man and says, Tin Man, how do I get to the Emerald City? And the Tin Man says, There's no such place as the Emerald City. It's just a myth. There's no such place as the Emerald City. It's just a myth. And Dorothy scratches her bald head. <laughs> and she says, that doesn't sound right. I've heard that the Emerald City is, is the only place I should be going. And, and so I got this flying monkey advice. And now I have this advice that says, don't even bother because the whole thing is just a myth. And then uh, Dorothy goes to the Cowardly Lion and says, Cowardly Lion, how do I get to the Emerald City? And the Cowardly Lion says... All roads lead to the Emerald City. All right, these are the options. Listen, I didn't pick my traveling companions, okay? So, so this one says, listen, 
Follow the flying monkeys, they'll get you there. This one says, don't even worry about it because there is no Emerald City. And this one says, hey, it doesn't matter which road you take because all roads lead to the Emerald City. And Dorothy is still frustrated with all these answers and says, none of this makes any sense to me. So Dorothy goes to the munchkins and Dorothy says to the munchkins, hey, munchkins, how do I get to the Emerald City? And the munchkins say, no, they go, follow the yellow brick road, like that. But you got the point, right? Okay? So, so I got this advice that is telling me, hey, just, just um, go, because she doesn't know anything. I mean, I mean, he doesn't know anything, this, this scarecrow. And just go with the monkeys, right? You know what? You know what's wrong with that advice? Look at this slide. The scripture says, my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Guys, it matters whether something's true or not. If I go where she told me to go, even though she's wrong, she may be sincere. There may have been wisdom and thought that went into her idea, but her idea happens to be incorrect. If I let the flying monkeys take me, where will I end up? The witch's castle. I don't want to go to the witch's castle. People are listening to this going, is this a sermon? Yes, it is. So, so listen, my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Guys, do you understand how much false ideas, how many false ideas, how much false teaching is out there in our culture telling people how to find what they need? It's everywhere, right? And then, so I go here and, and she says, listen, the whole thing's a myth anyway. Listen, eat, drink, and be merry. Just live in munchkin land. It's, it's not getting any better than this. There's no point. Make the most of it. You know, die young and leave a good-looking corpse. That's her idea, right? But, but here's what the Scripture says. The Scripture says, The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. That, that the whole thing's a myth. That we just made God up in order to make ourselves feel better psychologically. Listen, guys, it is foolish to look at all of creation and all of the evidence of God and go, you know what? I think the whole thing's made up. I don't think there is a God. The scripture says, if you believe that way, you're a fool. And then, and then Fuzzy over here, he says, he says, listen, all roads lead to the Emerald City. Why, why offend anybody? Let's just agree that we're, just pick a path. The red brick road, the green brick road, the orange brick road. Hoo-hoo! We could take whatever brick road we want, and it'll get us to the Emerald City. The problem is, no, it won't. What does the scripture say about this? Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Guys, that's an exclusive statement. And yes, it's offensive. And yes, it puts people off. But it just happens to be the truth and the most important truth you'll ever hear. All right, let's hear it for our actors. They're going to go sit down. You can just throw your sign on the ground there. That's all right. Michelle is taking extra bows. She wants an encore. That's fine. All right, thanks, guys. Listen, I'm going to wrap this up because um, I'm out of uh, movie illustrations. Um, here's the thing. Some of us are so afraid to offend and we're so committed to this sort of new idea of tolerance 
that we're just going to watch people go off a cliff and we're not going to say anything. Some of us have just decided that, you know, it's too hard to really know the truth. It's too hard to really uh, answer the questions that people have. And, And frankly, it's just too hard to love people that we don't like. Just too hard. So rather than love people... I'm just going to stand here and spout my doctrine. So there's these two ends of the spectrum that are both mistakes. The one end says, I never offend anybody. I don't worry about the truth. I just tolerate. But guys, scripturally, we were never taught to tolerate false ideas. We're supposed to tolerate people with false ideas. We're supposed to love people even when they don't understand. We're supposed to love people even when they're unlovely. So on the one hand, some of us are tempted to tolerate false ideas. On the other hand, some of us see our Bible and we do not see a book that is designed to help people find joy. We don't see a book that is designed to help people find fulfillment. We see a book that we can use as a weapon to crush people over the head with and tell them what losers they are and how they're wrong on this little issue of doctrine and wrong on that little issue of doctrine. And one of the things that Pastor Jim talked about last week is how the church, the whole body of Christ worldwide, we're arguing about all these little minutiae things so much that we can't even come together and be a light in our culture. So on the one hand, we're tempted to be so tolerant that the truth never gets out and people just go off cliffs and we just shrug our shoulders and go, bummer. And on the other hand, we're tempted to just stand on truth so much so that we crush people. Jesus died for people. And it gets difficult sometimes. But I love what Josh McDowell wrote about this. He, he said, tolerance says, you must approve of what I do. Love responds, I must do something harder. I will love you even when your behavior offends me. Tolerance says, you must agree with me. Love responds, I must do something harder. I will tell you the truth because I am convinced the truth will set you free. Tolerance says, you must allow me to have my way. Love responds, I must do something harder. I will plead with you to follow the right way because I believe you're worth it. Friends, it's not about being right. It's not about winning the argument or winning the election or whatever. It's about loving people so much that they have to meet this God who is loving them through you. The whole motivation of Jesus' life and ministry was love. Ephesians 4.15 says, speak the truth in love. And I talk about this all the time. It's not, he's not saying, hey, be nice when you have to say something that's hard to hear. He's saying, love people. Love them. Actually care about them. Invest in a relationship. Get to know them. Know what they're going through and who they are and what they care about and what matters to them. Support them. Encourage them. Come alongside of them. Be their friend. And in the context of a loving relationship like that, when necessary, speak things that are hard for them to hear. And when you speak those truths in the context of a loving relationship that you have you've put in the blood, sweat, and tears to build, those people are so much more open to hearing the truth of God's word. 
Speak the truth in love. That was Jesus' motivation for his whole life and ministry. That's what motivates him. That's what Good Friday is about. That's what Easter is about. Jesus is motivated by his love. And somehow, he never compromises truth in the process. Lord, make me more like Jesus. That's what motivates Jesus. What motivates you? Let's stand together and pray.